This evening we are recording a study in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. The subject being the work of the Son and the first item, the glorious redemption which has been wrought for us. It is our custom at these meetings to read a portion of scripture together. And those of you who are listening to this recording may like to share with us. If so, I suggest you switch off now for a time and read together with us Exodus chapter 12. You will remember in our study of the Epistle to the Ephesians that the uh, first 14 verses, or rather verse 3 to 14, (coughs) is subdivided into three parts by the recurring refrain unto the praise of his glory, or unto the praise of the glory of his grace. And these three parts we have denominated, in order to keep them easily in our memory, the will of the Father, the work of the Son, and the witness of the Spirit. Now the will of the Father, which occupies verses 3 to 6, makes no mention of sin, or salvation, or faith. It's simply the will of God before time began. But our knowledge of these scriptures, and of ourselves as well, helps us to realise that what God planned we should be, for you remember in our last study, the goal of his plan was that we should be holy, we know full well that that's not been achieved. And as we know our own hearts and the hearts of others, it never will be achieved if left to ourselves. So now we come to another phase of the purpose of God. Not merely the will to do the thing in eternity past, but the gracious love and the marvellous power that accomplished this wonderful deliverance which we denominate by the word redemption. If you think of creation, you could come across a verse like this which speaks as Hebrews chapter 1 does speak of our Saviour, it says that his hands laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens were the work of his fingers. But when you think of redemption, the only reference to his hands there are that they pierced his hands at his feet. When you think of creation, it is an act of majestic almighty power But when Paul was speaking about the crucifixion of the Saviour, he said he was crucified in weakness. And then, as as though he thought, now, that's shaking you a bit, hasn't it? He adds, but the weakness of God is stronger than me. But we've got two points of view. Redemption is essentially the condescension of the living God. Stooping, first of all, to be found in fashion as a man. And then instead of being fashioned in the most victorious and glorious specimen of the human race, like some Alexander the Great, he stooped and took upon him the form of a slave. And then he went down, not merely to death, which can be sometimes glorious, but he went down to a death, even the death of the cross. Well, there are some of the wonders that are in the background when we read Ephesians 1 verse 7 as we do now 
in whom we have redemption through his blood. I want to read now verse 7 and verse 8 because I suggest that we do a little punctuation of this passage. We'll read it as it stands in our authorised version first. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Well, I suppose we can say God can do anything, uh, but God is rational, and the word to abound means to be prodigal, overflowing, wasting if needs be, and wisdom and prudence means step by step, carefully weighing and measuring. I think we've put the punctuation mark in the wrong spot. So we'll read it all over again, shall we? And do remember this. There are no punctuation marks in the original. We're not adding anything or taking anything. We, Whatever we do, we are doing it ourselves, but there's nothing there to guide us except the sheer meaning of the words. In whom we have redemption, through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us. Full stop. In all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, oh yes, teaching us, and especially teaching us anything to do with a mystery, means wisdom and prudence, and not choking us, and not hurrying us. But with regard to the love that gave his son to be our redeemer, it overflows and overwhelms. See, you've lost nothing, friends, but I rather think you've gained the more by just making that little tiny alteration. Well, now shall we come back to the early part of verse 7? First of all, you notice know, it is in whom. All the way down this section, we have recurring the words in Christ, in whom, in Christ, in whom. And so it says at the last, verse 6, in the beloved, in whom. Still in him. There is no possibility of redemption outside of Christ. You can look at this from other points of view. In Christ, all made alive. If any man be in Christ, there is a new creation. And in whom, and in no other sphere, we have redemption. Now, this redemption is accomplished through his blood. Here is something that we do well to ponder for a moment. There are some lines of teaching which are expressed by some preachers Something like this. I don't want to travesty them. I want to honour them as speaking what they believe to be true, but I believe they're very wrong. They say we could quite understand in the early, more uncivilised, barbaric days when Moses gave the law uh, that there would be no sort of squeamishness about having a sacrifice and the shedding of blood. But as we've reached now such a standard of high civilization. It is monstrous for people and churches and hymns and teachers to speak about the blood of Christ. You see? But what are we going to do about it? There is no portion of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation but what emphasizes either the blood of Christ as a type or the blood of Christ as a reality. If you've never done it, Take the Bible in its sevenfold division. The law, the prophets, the Psalms, the Gospels, the Epistles, the Acts, and the Revelation. 
and see if you can find any one of those sections which doesn't come down completely and absolutely for the necessity of the sacrifice by the shedding of blood. And if you would admit that Ephesians is practically the zenith of the spiritual teaching of the New Testament, if there's any part of the New Testament that could at last dispense with the blood of Christ, it would be Ephesians and Colossians. But if they're without any alteration, and we must accept that, and we gladly do. Shall we look now at this word redemption? And you will remember that it occurs again in verse 14. In the witness of the Spirit, it says, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. So redemption is past, which has to do with the forgiveness of sins, and redemption is future, which has to do with the entry into our inheritance, which would be forfeited. Now the chart that you have before you seems to just link together. You see, first of all, standing in the centre, a doorway. Well, that is the Passover doorway, which we're going to consider presently. And the blood on the leaf, and the doorpost. And then, underneath it, is a word that is definitely not an English word. It's the word goel. Sometimes goel, G-O-E-L, sometimes G-A-A-L, according to grammatical necessities. Uh, so whichever you look up, it doesn't matter. Whichever you find, it's the same. That word, goel, is the king's man-redeemer, visualized in the book of Ruth, who didn't bring about the forgiveness of sins. But he did bring about the repossession of an inheritance that was lost by death. So we have, in the Passover lamb of Exodus 12, the great outstanding picture of redemption which sets us free, and in the book of Ruth, the great outstanding picture of a redemption that restores an inheritance. We cannot go to the Old Testament types to prove anything about the nature of the dispensation of the mystery, for that would be a contradiction in terms. But this is not to do with the mystery. Whether we belong to the Church of the One Body, or whether we are called during the day of Pentecost, or whether we were under the law of Moses, it matters not. Redemption is one of the same, and the Redeemer is one of the same, and His cross and His offering is one of the same. So here we have redemption. Through His blood, which is using the forgiveness of sins. Now I've said already uh, that the Passover, with its deliverance and release from Egypt, is suggested here in verse 7. That's not so, so much on the surface as it is beneath it, especially this word forgiveness. So in order that everyone may be sure of this, I'm going to turn to the fourth chapter of Luke's Gospel, where this word, forgiveness, occurs twice. I'll tell you the word. The word is aphesis. A-P-H-E-S-I-S. That word is the word we are going to consider now in Luke, the fourth chapter. Our Saviour has opened the book and he's now quoting from the prophet Isaiah, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. 
He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. Now twice in that verse we have the word atheist, translated forgiveness. First, it is the word to preach deliverance to those who are captives, and then to set at liberty those that are bruised. Bruised in this sense, suggesting the fetters that were on their wrists and their ankles. Well, that's the basic meaning of the word to forgive. Out from that come all the blessed other thoughts of being set free from the guilt, being restored to favour and what not that we associate with the forgiveness of sins. But that's the basic meaning, to be set free. Set free from the shadow of it, the guilt of it, and all the other complications. Now we must go back today to Ephesians 1, 7 and look at the word redemption. The word redemption in this verse, rather a long word, apoleutrosis. A-P-O being the word which means away from. Leutrosis being an extension of the verb luo, I loose. So the word redemption means to loose away from whatever was holding you. So the word redemption is like the word forgiveness. It sets you free. The apoeutrosis process or redemption is the power that sets you free and the forgiveness of sins you receive afterwards is the freedom that has been brought about. Oh, what a blessed thought. The Apostle Paul, who was the great exponent of this teaching, is the one that rings out the words in Galatians. To the liberty wherewith Christ hath made you free, stand fast. And it is he that uses that word twice in Galatians, ex agorazo, the word that means to go into a marketplace and put down the money to set a poor slave free. He uses that in Galatians for redemption. Another word. So the New Testament is rich in its terminology. Ephesians uses the word to set free. Galatians uses the word to put the price down. But that's also, that's also incipient in the word redeem, verse 7. If I give you another word, apoleutrosis, the stem of that word is L-U. All the rest of it is additions. L-U. Now, when our Saviour was on earth, he said, the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. That word ransom is the word leutron, L-U. So the ransom is the price that was paid to make redemption possible. Now, <coughs> when Paul was writing, he put the word anti, I-N-T-I, in conjunction with this word. It occurs in the passage in Matthew, but separate. So he says, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself an anti-neutron, a ransom for all, to be testified in due time. An anti-neutron. It's a fair of Kyle's word. There is something put there which is an equivalent in the eyes of God of all the sins of those for whom Christ died. 
We don't want to make it into a commercial bargain. We've got to watch our steps when we use these figures. But what a wonderful thought. An anti-neutron. An equivalent ransom. Something that settles all the problems that arise around setting a slave free, who is not merely a slave in the ordinary sense, but is a slave to sin and the bondage of death. Well, all that is in this word, redemption. In whom we have redemption. Now, I think that it would be wise for us to accept the thought that the types of the Old Testament have been included in the Scriptures on purpose. They're not to be looked at as being something which gives a little history of the past and you don't quite know why they're embedded in the book. There are too many of them. And in this particular case, we have got the authority of Scripture. Writing to the Corinthians, the Apostle said this, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. So if we never use any other type, we're obliged to accept this because it's actually backed by chapter and verse. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. So I'm going to turn back now to Exodus, the 12th chapter, and see what lessons we learn that are embedded in that great typical event. Exodus, the 12th chapter. If we read through the earlier chapters, we find these people in the house of bondage. That is the scriptural definition of the land of Egypt. The house of bondage. The land of Egypt might have been described in many other ways. It's a fascinating country, or it was, and it's left its mark on the world to this day. We still marvel at the treasures of Egypt which are being unearthed. But if all that is passed over in the scriptures, but it looks at it from another point of view. These people were in the house of bondage. They were ruled over by a man who said, Who is the Lord? I know not the Lord who himself was worshipped by his people as a god. Egypt, in the ordinary way, does not depend upon rain from heaven. Of course, it does depend upon rain from heaven. That's just silly foolishness, because it's got to come down somewhere. But so far as they're concerned, all they're concerned about is the rise of the river Nile and the depositing of its fertile mud all over the sides. And when that happens, that's all they need. So the Bible itself says, when it discriminates between the nations of the earth and Egypt, that the nations of the earth, if they do not obey God, they'll be punished by withholding rain. But Egypt, that doesn't need rain from heaven, they'll be punished in a different way. So you see, Egypt is a wonderful type of a world which says, there is no God, I don't know him, and we're independent of him. We don't even need rain. People today think that it's pouring your rain a little further up to fuel their river Nile, but that's just like the poor idiots of the world. Because they do not see the rain, they say there isn't any. And that's the way we should dispose of God as well. Well now, it's that people, Israel, that are in that position. And there are three words which come in the early chapters of the book of Exodus. And each one of them we can find repeated in the New Testament in a doctrinal sense. 
It says their lives were made bitter with bondage and burdens. Well, there are three words that could fit in the condition in which men are by nature. Embittered, unburdened, and in bondage. And redemption is the only way out of it. Nothing that man could have done or suggested would ever have allowed a whole nation to down tools and walk clean out of the territory of Egypt. They were too valuable. They were engaged in basic work, making bricks. And when Moses suggested that the people of Israel should go into the wilderness and serve God a three days journey, well that seemed absolute silliness. Surely it's far better to make bricks than serve God. Well, you don't get it put so crudely as that today, but I believe if you went in half the offices that are within a stone's throw of the very chapel we're speaking, you'd discover the policy of that office was brick-making rather than this idea of serving God. Oh, it's still there. There may be gold bricks for aught I know, but bricks just the same. And Babel, you know, they couldn't build in anything else. They had brick for stone. It's a symbol of this world's method. Bricks, oh yes. Millions of them. <coughs> and so there was no other way in which these people could be delivered but by an act of God. A miraculous act of God. And there's no other way in which you and I can be or have been delivered than by an act of God. A miraculous act of God. And the Apostle Paul who wrote Romans chapter 1, where he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. That word power is the word miracle in Matthew's gospel. So you could say, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the miracle of God unto salvation to everyone that believe it. And Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us, and the miracles been accomplished. And we're out of our bondage, and we're now God's free men. Well, we can take all these things to ourselves legitimately, for they're written for our learning. Well, now, how does this chapter start? And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of month. It shall be the first month of the year to you. A glimpse at chapter 13. Verse 4 will tell you the name of the month that was in mind. Verse 4. This day came ye out in the month A-B. A-B-I-B. And you can get a calendar to this day of the Jewish year and you'll find A-B is equivalent to our April. Near enough. April. And you know that whenever Easter comes in the church festival, it is exactly the same period as the Passover in Israel's year. They keep together. And that always is somewhere around about March or April. Well now then, we've got a, a thing to face here. Because the Jewish year actually doesn't commence in April. If you have a Jewish colony in your vicinity, if there's people who profess the Jewish faith 
in any town in which you live, you know that the great day of atonement and what is called the Rosh Hashanah, the new year, is about October. Always has been. Always will be. Or every year. The civil year, as it is called, commences in October, and it goes on ever since. But this is not the civil year. This is an intrusion. This is God breaking through the custom and says, oh yes, I know, but I'm starting again. Don't you see the point here, friend? The emphasis here, in the Passover, is the emphasis all through the New Testament that salvation is something new. Salvation is not merely reforming that which is old, as we were looking at at our Wednesday meeting. A new creation is not a reformation. A reformation is a reforming of existing material. You alter the shape, and you disguise the colour, and you say, behold, something new. But it isn't. When God makes something new, he always has this attacked onto it, and the former things are passed away. You see? So now he says, Moses, I'm going to impress upon the people for all time that redemption belongs to the new creation. It's a new thing. It's a completely new start. When I was speaking, oh, so many years ago that I almost fear to say how far, at a Sunday school class, I drew on the board an imaginary map of the railway system in London. And where I was actually giving the little word is still in existence. It is called Paradise Street. And there's actually, on the wireless, you can hear Paradise Kids still singing. Down the same street where I was actually speaking. Here in South London. And near to Paradise Street, conveniently, was a railway station called Adam Street. Adam Street. For some reason, they've given it a more respectable name, and it is now called Surrey Docks. Or rather high. No, rather high. But it was Adam Street. That was convenient, wasn't it? Paradise Street. Adam Street. And I said, now we're going to Palace Gates. That was a Station I think I invented. And then I got the children to tell me what station I must make for from Adam Street to get the Paddy's Gates. Well, after a little bit of suggesting here and a bit here, we came to the conclusion we must go via King's Cross. Have you got it? King's Cross. That's the Saviour's work. The cross. Where he died with the words over his head. King of the Jews. Well then I think is the lesson here. This month shall be unto you. You see, this is an alteration because you wouldn't say to anybody in sort of very solemn tones, Dear friends, do you realise that this month, January, is the first month of the year 1955? We say, well, what's the idea? Everybody knows it. But Moses had to come six months after the year had started, and say to these people, this month is the beginning of months to you. It's the first of the month, the first of the year to you. So that's the first lesson we learn. 
when we're preaching the gospel or thinking of ourselves, start nowhere else except redemption. You cannot start anywhere else. Until then, you're on the wrong side. It's the sphere of death and bondage. After redemption comes the time to talk about keeping unleavened bread or walking worthy of your calling or having access into the presence of God or whatnot, service and whatnot. But here you must start. Well, now we must go on because there are other features that still demand attention. We notice verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb or a house. And after verse 4, it says in verse um, 6, And ye shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month. So they take their lamb on the tenth day, and they keep it on the fourteenth day. Now, why did they have to keep it those five days? Now, don't correct me and say four, will you? Five days. Why did they have to do that? Well, one of the reasons is embedded in verse five. Your land shall be without blemish. Human nature is the same all the world over. And if current interpretations of the Jewish type of mind is anyway near the truth, It's very, very strong sometimes in certain Jewish people. And the Lord Moses knew this, or God knew this, that if a person was permitted to bring their lamb up at the last minute, the temptation would be too great to say, well, what's it matter? It's only a sacrifice. Put this one in. I'm not at all sure that what some of us wouldn't have thought the same thing, you know, possible. So it had to be segregated, and it had to be inspected, and it had to be passed. Now here's a point three. When I come to the New Testament, I find in Luke, the 23rd chapter, that Pilate, although he was being pressed, and he had a great deal to make him give way, the last thing that Pilate wanted was to be sent to Rome, to have an inquisition made into the way in which he carried on. That was the, that was the whipping that the Jews had over Pilate. And yet he himself examined Christ. And he said, I find no fault in him. And to add to it, his wife said to him, she said, have nothing to do with that just man. Just man. He seized on the idea that Christ had at some time in his career been preaching and speaking in Galilee. And so he was suddenly, he was suddenly afflicted with the thought, oh, I dare not intrude into the jurisdiction of Herod while I've read people doing the same thing today. Oh, what a get out it was. Oh, if only going to hand the whole responsibility over to Herod. So, he sent the prisoner to Herod. But Herod sent him back and said, I find nothing worthy of death in him. And then, a dying thief rebuked his fellow, and he said, this man has done nothing of this. We are being punished for our sins, but this man has done nothing of this. 
And even after he was dead, the centurion, seeing all that happened, looked and said, Of a truth, this was the Son of God. Now that's what I mean. Our Saviour didn't suddenly emerge at the last minute and offer himself as a sacrifice to God. He was tested all through his growing years. He was tested through the three and a half years of his public ministry. Heaven itself opened over his head at the beginning and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And it was repeated on the Mount of Transfiguration a long time afterwards. And it was endorsed by Pilate, by Pilate's wife, by Herod, by the dying thief, and by the centurion. In other words, they all examined the Lamb of God and they said, no blemish. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that blessed? To know that there's no possible doubt. He who bore our sins has this attestation from his very enemies that he did no sin. And in him was no sin. Well that I think is something worth pondering. It may be a little pleasantry, uh, but at the same time it's worth stressing that this reference to a lamb grows more personal each time it's introduced. <clears throat> at the end of verse 3, it's a lamb for a house. A lamb. Uh, but the next time of course it's the lamb. Now we're looking at that one particular lamb. The lamb. And verse 5 is even more personal. It's your lamb. I think that's a blessed thought, isn't it? It should be so with us all. We first begin to think there must be something in this teaching which we've heard about a saviour. As we learn a little more from the word of God, the conviction grows that he's not a saviour to be compared with other saviours. But we, we begin to hear the reading of words of Isaiah. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is none else. Oh no, he's the saviour. And then we suddenly collapse and take to ourselves in all humility the words of the Apostle Paul. The son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. A land, the land, your land. And then he goes on one stage further and says the whole congregation of the children of Israel shall kill it. Well now the whole congregation of the children of Israel killed a lot of lambs. They couldn't kill it. But you see we've, we've, we've almost passed from the type to the reality. The language of Moses leaps down the ages and sees the one lamb of God of which all these lambs were pictures. Kill it. Now our version says, kill it in the evening. But if you've got a marginal reference in your Bible, it tells you the Hebrew reads, between the two evenings. Now there are two explanations for this. One is, that on the same day, there was a sort of an early beginning, an approach to the evening, and then, after an interval, there was the evening itself which finished the evening. But there's another meaning, a one that I think should be borne in mind. To us, from a Gentile point of view, we're not quite happy about 
thinking of a Jew. We say, look at this Jew. He's got his shop open on Saturday evening. Well, I thought that was his Sabbath. But it isn't Sabbath all over. His Sabbath ends at sunset. It's the next day, if you can guess such a way of putting it, by the time you've got to the evening. So that if you can imagine the shape of a day, it would start here, go up, across there, go down there, go up there, and end again at the next sunset. So that you see, here's a problem that's, which is answered. How could it be possible that Christ could keep the Passover on the 14th day of the month with his disciples and yet be offered in the afternoon of the 14th day of the month on the cross itself? How could he keep the Passover in the evening of the 14th day and in the afternoon of the 14th day die on the cross? Well, yes, that's absolutely impossible. Of course it is if we're reckoning by Gentile time. But supposing we go back to their time. The 14th day of the month begins at sunset. And there in the upper room, he kept the Passover. Then he was apprehended and hurried away through the illegal trials and handed over to Pilate and by the afternoon finished but still within the 14th day of the same month, we've got to apologise for nothing, explain nothing, but only put ourselves right, that's all. Reckon the time as the people themselves reckoned it, and to this very day, it's in our language. Christmas Eve doesn't come after Christmas, does it? The Eve of Christmas is before, and you say, well, I thought the evening was the end. No, well, you were wrong then. The eve of a battle is before it starts, not afterwards. And from Genesis 1 onwards, it's the evening and the morning were the first day. The evening is the beginning. Well, that is not perhaps too important, but it's here embedded in the very title. Now, as the word Passover I would like to mention. The word Passover. I remember once, many years ago, when I was at Draycott, speaking on this subject, one of the uh, young men of the party, very, or was about perhaps 18, he's now a father of a family, that are many of them out to work and some married, so you see it's a long way back. He came up to me just before the meeting, very solicitous for my good name. I was so glad. He said, excuse me, he said, but you spelt the word Passover wrong on your chart. So I said, yes, thanks, but I'll explain why. That was very nice of him. Well, what I put on the chart was the word pause over. P-A-U-S-E-O-V-E-R. I took a little liberty. Instead of saying Passover, I said, pause over. Now, we you look at chapter 12, verse 23. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, 
But when he sees the blood upon the lintel and on the doorside post, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come in. He will pass through to smite the Egyptians, but he will pass over. Now, pass over suggests sort of moving on, doesn't it? But the figure seems to demand that he should stay there and protect. Well, there's a reason for this, and we can find it in other scriptures. Um, first of all, the first of Kings, the first book of Kings, the 18th chapter. This chapter contains two references to the word Pesach, which is the word we're considering Passover. 1 Kings 18 21 1 Kings 18 21 And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be gone, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Now that word halt is the word Passover. But it doesn't mean Passover. It means hover. A person who halts between two opinions, when he's sitting on the fence, he's not going. He's hovering. Or look in the same chapter, verse 26. These priests of Baal. But there was no voice, nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar which was made. Margin, they leaped up and down. They hovered. They didn't go away. They stopped there, up and down, up and down. And the figure can be illustrated by Isaiah 31. Isaiah 31, verse 5. 31, verse 5. As birds flying, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending also, he will deliver it, and passing over, pausing over, Hovering over, he will preserve it. That's the way a bird preserves its young. It doesn't pass away and leave them, it spreads out its wings and hovers over them. And then you get this picked out, don't you, later on in the Psalms and elsewhere. The outspread wing. All how many times that is a picture of the redeeming love of God. The protecting love of God. The under the protection of his feathers. So strong is this embedded in the thought. So there we have the thought there, not to pass over and leave, but to pause over and protect. Come back to Exodus 12, I think perhaps for the last thought that we'll have at this study. It was the verse on which we ended our reading, verse 30. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Now, strictly speaking, that was referring to the houses of Egypt only. But it could be taken more. You could include the houses of Israel, there was not a house in which there was not one dead. But the difference was this. In the Egyptian house, 
It was a man. And in the Israelite house, it was a lamb. And that's the essence of redemption. A lamb instead of a man. And somehow or other, I think, we've got to see this. That the wages of sin is death. It'll be borne by everybody. But you'll bear it either as the Egyptian in your own body, or you'll bear it in the person of him who took your place. It may be a crude way of putting it, but it's there. Well, now don't you think that that was worth stopping? Holding up our study of the epistle to the Ephesians with all its mystery and its wonderful blessings, just to go over this old, old story of a Redeemer's love, set forth in type and symbol in this first great exodus from Egypt. And you do know, don't you, in the New Testament, that word exodus is used of the work of Christ. In the record in Luke's Gospel, which speaks about the transfiguration of our Saviour on the mountain, Moses and Elijah are then depicted and speaking of his deceits, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. But that word deceit is the word exodus. I don't know whether Moses and Elijah looked at one another and gave one another a sort of a little glint of the eye. I wouldn't be surprised. Moses said, well, yes. I know what an exodus was. For I led my people dry shod across the Red Sea. And Elijah said, I led Elisha across the water dry shod too. They both did it. One in a vast sense, one in a small sense. They both knew, symbolically, an exodus right through without being touched by it. And now they're looking at him and they said, he's going to accomplish that which we only did in type and shadow. Moses, the law, Elijah, the prophet, Christ, the fulfillment. So let's be glad that although four prison epistles may represent to us the acne of the Apostles' teaching concerning the present dispensation. Let's be glad of the law of Moses and the testimony of the prophets that like John the Baptist's finger continually say, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world.